Well, welcome to City Reform Presbyterian Church. It's good to be with you. My name is Pastor Joseph Bianco, and I want to welcome you this evening to our evening service. Uh, if you're new to this church, we have an evening service and a morning service, but our morning service cannot fit in this building, and so we meet at Winchester Thurston. Um, and if you heard uh, Ginny pray, uh, we are having a congregational meeting in May uh, to uh, have a discussion about the possibility of buying a larger building in Oakland. So you can be uh, in prayer for that and how that will affect the mission of, of our church as well. Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians 5 today, and that's page uh, 6 of your bulletin. And before I read it, let me, let me pray for the reading of God's Word. Would you pray silently with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your Word and we think about heaven, what happens after we die. Lord, often these things can feel uh, far from us because, well, for many reasons. We, maybe we're young. Maybe we think we have more time than we do. Maybe we take for granted the days that we have. But Lord, whatever these things are, help us to, to hear your word and to live, Father, with the hope and the expectation of eternity with you. Father, as we, um, we've prayed many times today, we continue to pray for those families of the Nashville shooting. Lord, we never know when our time will come. So, Father, help us to take heed to this word. Let it feel real to us. Father, comfort those who grieve, and yet, Lord, give us hope, the hope of the resurrection. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, our reading is uh, from 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 1 to 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, it's good to be with you. Um, our text addresses <clears throat> the afterlife, uh, that is, what happens after I die. Um, perhaps it's not the, the happiest thing to discuss, but it's important. And as my father says, there's there's two things for certain, death and taxes. 
As we think about the afterlife today, there's an implicit challenge in this text that we would be so fearful of death that we would cling to this world and forget that we have a home built for us with God in heaven. Because we will all die, the Apostle Paul challenges us to prepare for death in such a way that the expectation of heaven is more real than your present condition. We live in such a way that what is unseen has more of our attention than what is seen. So I cannot say it more succinctly than the Apostle Paul, we walk by faith and not by sight. But how do we walk by faith? So three ways. First, we prepare for God's house. Second, we long for God's house. And third, we find courage in God's house. So let's begin with preparation. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What happens after you die? What happens immediately after you die? People have been asking this question for millennia, as long as humans have existed, and people come up with some very weird and strange responses to that question. Um, outside of Christianity, the, the answers range from nothing happens to maybe floating above your body in an ethereal state to a sense of peace and tranquility, uh, maybe to more Buddhist beliefs like nirvana where you become one with all things and simultaneously nothing, or Hinduism that you immediately come back as a, an animal, maybe a frog or a raindrop or a rainbow. Humans imagine all kinds of things. What Scripture teaches is this, that when you die, your soul goes immediately to be with Jesus in heaven until that time when Christ returns and the dead are raised and the final judgment happens, which we uh, get a glimpse of in verse 10, where Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So this state of existence between the time when God, um, when a believer first dies and when God raises the dead, theologians call this the intermediate state. The intermediate state. And in that state, we will not have bodies, but our souls will be fully united to Jesus and we will be at peace. Now, uh, much more about the intermediate state, I cannot tell you because I do not know. Uh, some people, like Catholics, have embellished the intermediate state to what they call purgatory. So maybe you've heard of purgatory. So purgatory is where you pay off the rest of your sins as you wait until you get into heaven. Now, what is the problem with purgatory? The problem with purgatory is that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, which means that he paid for your sins, past, present, and future, so that if your faith is in Jesus, when you die, you will meet him in God's house. The other view is that there is no intermediate state, that our souls being in heaven, because heaven exists out of time, this is all theory, uh, would be just an instant, and so that we would be um, kind of immediately reunited with our bodies. 
The problem with this view is that the text clearly indicates that there is a building eternal in the heavens. Uh, Jesus also talks about a mansion where he goes to prepare a place for you, and he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. We read of the return of Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we read uh, that he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom, and there's some interaction uh, with um, the rich man. On the cross, Jesus said to the dying thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. And Paul himself was taken up to the third heaven. So, we have too many examples in Scripture to have any other view of the intermediate state than to understand that it is a state in which, one, we are disembodied, our bodies rest in the grave, and our souls with Jesus. Two, we are conscious, conscious, we are aware of what's happening. And three, it is a home in which we dwell with God. Whether that is a, a, a literal or figurative home, I'm not entirely certain. <laughs> so here's what our confession says about it. It says, their souls are made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies which even in death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds until they are again united to their souls at the last day. So this is the intermediate state. And part of the reason I shared this with you is because, frankly, I was curious. What happens? And I thought you would be curious too. But uh, Paul is less concerned actually with describing it, and he's more concerned that you're prepared for it, that you're prepared for it. Notice verse 2 and 3 and 4, there's all this language of putting on clothes and taking off clothes or being found naked. Now, it's, it's a bit confusing at first, but I think the best way to read this is actually an analogy within an analogy. Paul wants you to long to put on your heavenly dwelling. Now, maybe you've heard the expression, uh, dress like a man. That expression comes from Job chapter 38 and chapter 40, uh, where God is chastising Job. God is saying to Job, prepare yourself, brace yourself, get ready for what I'm about to say to you. Similarly, Paul uses this language of putting on. To put on heaven means to get ready, to prepare yourself for heaven. And conversely, to be unprepared would be like being found naked. Verse 4. Now, verse 3 is taken by John Calvin as preparedness. This is the analogy in an analogy, but with a particular focus on your morality. So, prepared morally, meaning it is possible for a Christian to be unprepared to die maybe because they are continually stuck in some particular sin or fallen habit. And thus, when death calls, they're found naked. They're not prepared. So it's an analogy in an analogy. However you read this, the point is clear that we ought to live our lives now in preparation for our, our next home in heaven. And this is actually a really big challenge, isn't it? 
What's the inherent challenge in Paul's word? Well, it's that this is my home. (laughs) I live here. I have an address. My children go to school here. I was raised here. But I'm supposed to live as if this is not my true home? I'm supposed to always be prepared to leave? Yes, you are. I am. We are always preparing to leave because for all of us, we do not know when death will come. Now, the temptation for us Pittsburghers is the good life. The good life. The comfortable life. To make our niche here. To kind of burrow in and find our place. And plant our gardens. And develop our friendships. And feel at home and to feel comfortable. And we'll see in the next point that those things in and of themselves are not bad. But if we are not more excited about being with God in heaven than with each other on earth, then we have failed to prepare to leave. Friends, you always have to keep a suitcase packed in the closet. You must always sleep with your shoes on. You must always be ready to say goodbye. Because death is coming for all of us. I think more than any generation, uh, we have a separation from death that is quite unhealthy. We live as if we will not die. And so when death comes, we find that we have not known how to live. Christians live always hoping, always looking, always expectant that God will show up or that our time will come. Either way, we will be with Jesus. So we prepare for God's house. Second, we long for God's house. I want you to look at verses 1, 2, and 4. It says, For we know that this tent, this earthly home is destroyed. And then verse 2, In it we groan. In verse 4, For while in this tent we groan, being burdened. Now in contrast with these uh, verses are verses 6 to 8. While we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. In verse 8, we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. These contrasting sections of Scripture are like a litmus test for Christian maturity. So I'm going to go step by step. First, we groan. This life, this earth, these mountains and trees and stars and skies are but a shadow of the beauty that is to come. The good relationships you share, maybe the beautiful township you live in, or the fact that you can go out to a nice restaurant to eat a meal, these things are mere foretastes of the true meal. So we groan has two meanings. Uh, First, it means we actually experience sickness and sorrow and death and hardships and chaos and tragedies and losses, and so many other things that should not be. But we groan also means that this life is but a precursor to the next. Stars won't shine, mountains won't glimmer, food won't be as good as it will in the next life. So why is this a test of maturity? Because the mature Christian looks at this life 
and doesn't make it his home. The mature Christian appreciates a good meal out, a happy friendship, a clean town, but she recognizes that this is not all there is. It can't be. Second, the mature Christian experiences the groanings of life and longs for heaven. Heaven is the antidote to suffering in this world. The only thing that can truly destroy you is to have your hope removed. But if you have hope, even if everything is taken away from you in this life, you look to the next. You look with expectation of that which you cannot see, that which you long to see. Now we see dimly, but then face to face. You long to be with God in the arms of Jesus, perfectly at peace and at rest. Do you see why I say this as a marker of Christian maturity? Mature Christians think this way. They're prepared for death, and they long to be in God's house. So I've experienced this the most, um, frankly, when good things are taken away from me. I'd like to tell you that I am this mature, and I'm moving in the right direction, uh, but often I learn these lessons when the comforts of life are removed from me. Many of you know I've, I've suffered with chronic uh, autoimmune diseases, but it's been through these sufferings that the hope of heaven has become much more important to me. Now, of course, it's not just sickness. I've experienced this in relationships that have been strained or lost because I love Jesus. I've experienced this living in a broken world where sin still has some power. This, this is why we walk by faith and not by sight. We put our trust in a home we currently do not see and we shape our lives around a future we have not yet experienced. So I couldn't help get this image out of my head that we are faith walkers. Christians are those who walk by faith, who shape their whole lives around the gospel. So how about yourself? Have you felt this longing for heaven? This longing to be at home with the Lord? Have you prayed, come Lord Jesus? When those children were gunned down at the school in Nashville. That church and that school are part of our denomination. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've never felt this, I want you to let these words challenge you. Perhaps this world has become your home. Perhaps your bags are not packed. The car is shut off and you're tucked warm and snug in your bed. Perhaps this world has become too comfortable for you. I think this is the great danger, that we fear losing the good life. So much that we burrow into our part of the world and we hide our heads underground. We think if I don't engage in this, then I don't have to, to feel it or deal with it. Friends, we are not separatists. We do not separate ourselves from the world. We love the world and we are so burdened. We are not of the world, but we love the world with the love of Jesus. We have to be careful lest we're found naked. 
So we prepare and we long for our Father's house, and then lastly, we find courage in our Father's house. I want you to notice that Paul uses the word courage twice. In verses 6 and verse 8, uh, it's translated to be of good courage, um, but the more literal translation is to have courage, verse 6, and then verse 8 is to be courageous. So why are we exhorted twice to be courageous? And if you've been following me so far, it should be fairly obvious because this is a scary world. (laughs) There's a lot we could be afraid of in this life. We could fear a changing political climate. We could fear rising hatred directed towards Christians. We could fear sending our kids to school. We could fear global warming or the possibility of war. We could fear offending people when we share the gospel. We can fear for the soul of the person if we don't share the gospel. We can fear tragedies over which we have no control. Natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods. We can fear terrorism. We can fear mass shootings. I could just go on and on forever, couldn't I? It's precisely because Paul knows that we have reasons to groan in this world that he tells us to take courage, to be courageous. Why? Because one day you will have a home. He says, while we're in the body, we're away from the Lord, but we long to be with him. Until then, take courage. Take courage because you have a home in heaven waiting for you. And whatever thing you're afraid of now is nothing compared to the home that will be. If you know that one day you have an eternity to do that hobby you love, you will not cling to it so much now. If you know that you will have eternity to be with the people you love, you won't see to be so desperate to squeeze in every minute. If you know that God will raise the dead, then even death itself loses its power. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of? In your life, don't think of other people. What are you afraid of? Now I want you to take that and I want you to challenge it with the hope of eternity with God, a heavenly home waiting for you. Are you afraid of people-pleasing? I want you to consider that. I want you to compare it with an eternity with God in heaven. Not only will no one ever remember the offense, but God will right all wrongs. Your hope is in heaven, not earth. Are you afraid of losing the good life or missing out on an opportunity or a raise at work or a promotion? No one dying ever wishes they worked more in this life. No one. Because you realize you can't take it with you. Friends, whatever that thing is for you, I want you to take courage. Be of good courage. Look your fear in the face and combat it with the house of God. In the house of God, you will find courage. You know, there's a seemingly universal truth that if there's something that you're afraid of doing, then the one thing you should do is to do the thing that you're afraid of. So when you learn to rock climb, uh, the first thing you learn is not climbing, actually. It's falling. You have to learn to fall. 
Um, both you need to fall the right way and you need to not be afraid of falling. If you are afraid of falling, that when you do go to climb, you're going to overgrip and you're going to shake and you're, you're going to do what's called the Elvis leg. And you get all sweaty and then you end up falling anyway. If you go up and you fall over and over and over and over again, you get used to falling. And then suddenly it's not so scary. In your life, I want you to learn to fall. Find ways in your lives to live courageously. Go out on a limb. Do something that you've been afraid of doing. Maybe it's inviting that non-Christian friend for dinner and you've been putting it off because there's something you're afraid of in the relationship. Maybe it's giving. Maybe a donation you've been meaning to make because it feels scary. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with a person you're afraid would reject you. Maybe it's a reconciling conversation you need to have with a loved one you've been avoiding. Maybe it's a sin that you need to cast off, but you're afraid to give it up. Whatever it is, I want you to practice falling. Take a small fall, and then a maybe slightly bigger fall, and then a bigger and bigger fall until it's a real whipper. And what you'll find is this, that God is trustworthy. He is faithful. That when you fall, he will catch you. And that you can have courage because even if everything goes bad in this life, you have a home in heaven. In fact, he's given the Spirit as our guarantee. That's our constant reminder that you do not need to be afraid. That you belong to the Heavenly Father. I want to finish out this sermon uh, just thinking about Easter and the resurrection. In one week, Christians around the world will celebrate Easter. Um, and Easter is our celebration of the hope that we have. That one day the dead will be raised. That God will make all things that were wrong into right. Easter is the promise that when we die, we will be with God because Jesus paid the cost of our sins by dying on the cross. We are Easter people. We're hopeful people. We're courageous people. You know, I was really struck uh, by a statement I read after the shooting in Nashville. And the shooting felt close to home for me, uh, partly because this is a school of a church in our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, but then it felt really close to home when I learned that one of the the children uh, that was murdered was the child of a pastor. And it was really hard not to think of my children. You know, perhaps the greatest pull I have to this world, the thing that pulls me to this world right now is my family. To think of leaving this world before seeing my children have their own children would greatly sadden me. I would not be ready in that sense to leave. But the pastor whose name of, the, of that church, whose name is Pastor Scruggs, his words encouraged me when the unthinkable happened. He gave a one-sentence response to the media. He said this. It's in your bulletin. He said, Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus, 
who will raise her to life once again. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. This is our hope. This is why we're Easter people. This is why you do not have to be afraid. So let's go and trust these things and be a courageous people for the glory of God in heaven. Let's pray.